right, good morning, everyone. I really, really like that song um, because it captures the essence and I believe the uniqueness of the message that uh, God has given to us as a people and that we've gathered here together to understand better so that we can become better equipped to share it with others. And I'm excited about uh, this morning as well, because over the last couple of years, I have been seeking to understand more and more how I can more thoroughly explain and present our message from the Bible, and especially from the writings of Paul. I have a personal and particular affinity for Paul's writings, and Paul is usually perceived as being the complicated New Testament writer. And so one of my joys has been seeking to understand Paul in such a way that I can explain him and that others can understand his message in as simple a way as possible. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do this morning. And because that can be a difficult task, uh, even Peter says that, uh, we need the Holy Spirit to guide us in our understanding. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me as I kneel for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this great privilege of being the people of the one true God. And it is our prayer that as we put our minds to your word that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. God, we pray that you will please exalt our minds so that we can catch a glimpse of the reality that has been introduced through Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, for any soul that is struggling and is being defeated, that this message would nourish their minds and hearts and give them the strength they need to overcome. I pray, Lord, for any soul that is burdened with guilt, and who feels as though they cannot approach you because of their error, that you would please show them the mercy and forgiveness that you offer and the reconciliation, the unity that you want between yourself and us. And Father, I pray for clarity and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And I ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of my favorite New Testament books, period, not just in Paul, is the book of Ephesians. And one of the things that I love about the book of Ephesians is its broad scope. If you sit down, and I encourage you to do this perhaps this weekend, maybe sometime on Sabbath, if you sit down and you read through the book of Ephesians in one sitting, you'll quickly see that the doctrines and principles that have been so essential to Christianity are presented here but in a magnified light. The gospel and the mission of the church are Paul's major burdens in the epistle of Ephesians. But as you read it, you'll begin to see that he sets both of these principles and concepts within the framework of the great controversy. And so as I began to read and understand the gospel message and the gospel mission, 
my perspective on the church's message and mission have been greatly enhanced through the reading of the book of Ephesians. Now, with Paul's letters, and this will be important for understanding how we approach the book, because there's only so much that we can actually go into and explain here, he usually begins the first half or the first major section of his book with a theological explanation of what God has done in Christ. And then after he establishes that, he moves into the practical component of what that means for us today. And so there is always this transition between theology and practice. And I know that the word theology and the idea of theology and trying to understand Paul's theology can oftentimes turn people away and turn people off. So instead of thinking of it as theology, I want to encourage you to think of it as reality. Because it is our understanding of reality that affects the way we live and what we do. So when someone starts talking about theology, don't just think of it as theology. Think this person is talking about reality, hopefully if their theology is coming from the Bible. And our hope that is that during this conference, that is where our theology will be coming from. So what we're going to be dealing with this morning is a crucial passage in Paul's explanation of reality and what God has accomplished for us. Before he gets to the argument that he lays out in chapter 2 that we'll be dealing with this morning, he first begins the first 14 verses of the book with a bird's eye view of redemption. From eternity past, to what God has done for us in the present and what we are longing for God to complete in the future. And after that, he goes in to talk about how he's become personally acquainted with the church in Ephesus. And how now that he's learned that they've been introduced to the gospel, he wants to deepen and further their understanding. And so he begins his prayer. And in his prayer, he says there's two major things that I am longing for you to understand. And as we study this morning, I ask that you will keep these two major things in your prayer and long for an understanding yourselves. The first is that he wants the church to grasp the glory of the inheritance that he has prepared for them. Because there's something about knowing what God is going to bring about for all of creation that inspires us with a sense of awe, adoration, worship, and service. But the second thing that he wants the church to understand is the power that he has made available for each and every one of us. And in fact, he goes to the most powerful event in all of world history to give us an example of what that power looks like. He turns to the resurrection of Christ. 
And he says that God wants to give you the same kind of power that he worked out in Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Above and beyond all principality and power. And that's such an important principle. Christ has received an authoritative position that is above any spiritual or secular force. And that should provide us with encouragement and strength during our times of struggle, be it with spiritual or secular forces. But then he goes further to say that God has granted Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body. So as this cosmic authority, as this cosmic head, you have been gifted with him. So that by union with Christ, you actually become an extension of the heavenly kingdom here on earth. And so in chapter 2, he goes on to explain the essence of what that means. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the children of disobedience. So Paul begins his setting for his gospel proclamation with the stark reality that all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles, have been captured by a spiritual foe. Indeed, the world has been hijacked by Satan. And this is important for us to understand for two reasons. Number one is that any gospel that does not contain this spiritual component of God rescuing us from some spiritual cosmic foe is not the New Testament gospel. It can't be. Whatever gospel we believe in must be rooted and grounded in this larger setting that there is a controversy taking place that goes beyond and outside of ourselves. The second reason is that we have to understand that the world in which we live, the direction of the world, its customs, its pride, its fashion, its general direction is not simply motivated by the psychology of man, is not simply motivated by how man thinks within himself, but is being directed by a force of opposition. And so humans who are disconnected from God have actually been brought into a satanic confederacy And Paul wants them to understand the reality because if we can get our minds wrapped around the true situation that exists, 
will be much better prepared to grasp and understand the glory of the salvation that God is working out for us. And in verse 3, he goes in now to focus in on how Satan leads us about, how Satan leads us astray. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now the key principle here to understand, and this has been monumental for me in terms of my own spiritual experience and what it means to be victorious and and how we can be victorious, is that Satan leads us into sin by pulling on our own passions and desires. And so now immediately there is an internal conflict. And his desire is that by pulling on our passions and appetites, he can bring our will down into subjection. And so Satan leads us about through ourselves. And this is why so many people are enslaved in the world, but actually believe they're free. Because when you seek to point out to them the nature of the slavery, they can't see it because in their mind they're doing exactly what they want to. Because he's using their own desires to lead them astray. But when we understand that, we can then approach God and seek for the power to pull our own appetite and passion into subjection. And this process is really essential to the renewal that God wants to work out in us. And because the world is filled with woe and rape, and crime, and destruction, there's only one solution that is suitable, and it is a solution, and that is the final judgment, because in the judgment, God is going to set this crooked world straight. The problem, though, for many of us, is that we are headed towards that final destruction, rather than the final renewal. And so God looks down on a broken and captive humanity. And solely motivated, solely motivated by his love, he sends Jesus to rescue us. Verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Now the thing that you have to notice about the passage is that every phrase is calculated to demonstrate to the people of God that the only thing that moves God to rescue us is his own love. 
rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. And when we think of death, obviously we have a passive state in mind. But don't let the metaphor fool you. Paul is talking about people who have been actively engaged in rebellion against God. Yet, God looks past the rebellion and sees the jewels that you and I could become through redemption. And sends his son to rescue us from the gripping power of the enemy. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he brought us to life with the Messiah. By grace, you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So notice that he's not only forgiven us, he's not only redeemed us, but he's also exalted us. Now, one of the things that causes, for example, young women to enter into human trafficking or prostitution is a low view that they have of themselves. And so part of the solution to bringing that uh, salvation to them, if you will, is helping them to redevelop a positive concept about themselves. Not above what God would have us to think about ourselves, but surely not below it. And I bring this up to say that essential to our renewal, Christ says in the, uh, excuse me, Paul says in the book of Romans, consider yourselves dead indeed unto sin. Essential to our renewal is the way that we perceive ourselves. And in this passage, Paul is saying that we have been exalted and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Beloved, in Christ Jesus, you are at the very throne of God. And that language is drawn from the 110th Psalm. Winston talked about this yesterday. And in that passage, the Messiah is seated, the Christ is seated at God's right hand, waiting, expecting for all his enemies to be made a footstool under his feet. The point is that in Christ, when we sit at the right hand of God, we are heirs of the promises. In Christ Jesus, you are an heir of the heavenly reality. You are an heir of the new heavens and the new earth. Romans 8 says that we will reign with Christ. And as far as Paul is concerned, he presents it as though we were there in Jesus when he was raised from the dead. You can see yourselves in that light now. And live out the principles of the coming kingdom in the present. Live out the principles of the heavenly reality now, even as we wait for creation to be finally and fully renewed. 
And verse 7, I love this. I've read this so many times, and this was the first time just recently, just within the last six months, that it jumped out. So that in the ages to come, he might demonstrate the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, are you familiar with the quote where Ellen White says, essentially, that we will be studying the character of God, the science of salvation throughout all eternity? And we as a people understand that the demonstration of God's character in light of the great controversy is essential to the plan of renewal. In the garden, it wasn't simply that Satan tricked Eve into sinning, he also reframed God as one who was only concerned about his self. And so we should not be surprised that in this passage where Paul is dealing with cosmic redemption, he not only focuses on the rescuing of humanity from Satan, but also on the demonstration of God's character. And let us please grasp the fact that it is the redemption in verse 4, 5, and 6, and no other that is the basis for this eternal display. In other words, what makes the display so grand and glorious is the means by which God has rescued us. His emphasis is he's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses and sins. The point is God is going against the grain of human rebellion and overcoming selfishness and pride with his love and his forgiveness and his grace. And that salvation, it's that redemption that serves as an eternal display of God's character. And what I will say, and this goes both ways, if your perception of God is wrong, your experience with him can never be right. Our perception of God must change. And he's poured out all of heaven in a single gift so that it can But it's also true that unless we have this experience, that we will never truly be able to appreciate the goodness and kindness of God. Paul goes on to explain further in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, it's certainly true that this passage has been captured, ripped out of context, and used by many according to their own will to create the effect or the idea that because God saves us by grace and grace alone, that, 
obedience and restoration of our humanity is not as essential. And so immediately when we come to this passion passage, oftentimes we immediately respond and go into Adventist defense mode. And that's not bad. We have to be able to help people uh, work out the error that has infiltrated their mind through years and years of tradition and misconception in the love and spirit of Christ. But as I began to read this passage in the light of the overall gospel plan, I began to see that actually it's this principle that is essential to our restoration. And when I say restoration, I am talking about our moral restoration, us being recreated in the image of God. The reason that this is so is because part of God's plan to rehumanize us, as a phrase I like to use, because Satan has dehumanized us with subhuman practices, and many of us live like animals rather than dignified humans, God's plan to rehumanize us is uh, central to it is reestablishing the relationship that humans had with God at Eden. Specifically, what I'm referring to is the fact that at the fall, humans began to exalt themselves above God and above their fellow man. And pride just bubbles out of us. As a good friend of mine says, pride is not something you choose to do. It just happens. And it's only through the sanctifying grace of the Spirit that it can be checked. But because of self-exaltation and the human proclivity or the human tendency to take the glory which is due to God alone and ascribe it to ourselves, God has worked out a plan that eliminates all human boasting. And if we see the problem of pride as central to the problem of sin, then when we understand that God's grace redeems us and Paul's hammering it home, that it's not because of you, it's because of him, so that you will not boast, we see that the gospel of grace itself, undiluted, placed within its proper biblical context, is actually essential for our true restoration. Are you with me? God wants to restore us and give us victory over lust and over appetite, over smoking or drinking or impatience. But core to renewal, central to what it means to become truly human again, is God eradicating the pride that exists within our hearts. And he does that by pointing us to the cross of Calvary. 
If we look to the cross, and I'm so excited that I get to preach on the cross Sabbath morning. If we look to the cross and we truly fix our minds on the magnitude of what God has done there, it will break our hearts so that God can restore and rebuild us. It will strip us of our pride and our selfishness and our self-seeking. And we won't want to presume on the grace of God. We will want to embrace the grace of God and become truly human again. And finally, in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And in the Greek of verse 10, his is brought forward in the sentence so that it emphasizes it. If we were to bring that into an English translation, we would italicize the word his. So that the text would read, for we are his workmanship. And he's explaining the fact that salvation did not come from you. It came from him. He's the creator. He's the renewer. And so we have, in a nutshell, the redemptive plan that God is bringing about in Christ. And I want to close by honing in on this creation that Paul talks about. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. 21, 22, and 23. Paul, in the first few verses before this, is talking about how the Gentiles walk around in the emptiness of their mind. They've been darkened. And so their hearts have been calloused, and they live their life by indulging in whatever desires they have, as we saw there at the beginning of Ephesians 2. But in verse 20, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Verse 23 and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. Now, a better translation would be the, uh, the new man. Indeed, an even better translation would be the new humanity. And then he goes on to say, which is being renewed in the likeness of God which has been created in the likeness of God or according to God. If you look here and listen closely to the first couple of chapters of the Bible, what you'll see is that Paul has taken us from creation and fall to recreation and renewal. 
in just a couple of chapters. What Paul is saying is that humans were originally created in the image of God. God's image was defamed in them through the captive power of Satan. But in Christ Jesus, that image is being renewed. And because of this, we will eventually sit with Christ and reign with Christ in the heavenly places. And my appeal for you this morning is to take a moment and capture this reality and let it transform your mind so that when you leave this room, you no longer live as one who is a citizen of this present corrupt age, but you live as one who has been renewed in Christ Jesus and is bringing forward the principles of heaven into the present. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the tremendous amount of love that you have displayed for us. God, help us never to minimize your grace and the fact that we are only purchased by your love and mercy because that in and of itself is essential to our true renewal. And Lord, we pray that you will please Lift our minds up. Lord, help us to catch a glimpse. Help us to saturate ourselves in the reality that we are your children. Forgive us for when we've gone astray, Lord. Forgive us when we've allowed our minds to settle for the pride and desires of a corrupt world. And we pray, Lord, that you will please fill us with the joy of holiness, the joy of renewal, the sweet joy of your presence. And as we continue to learn over the course of this weekend, I pray that you would deepen the impressions that have taken place in the minds of every person here, including myself. We ask all this in the glorious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.